Welcome to the Resilient Mind Podcast. In this episode, you will be listening to Transcending Your Environment with Dr. Joe Dispenza. Get access to the Mental Mastery Program and other exclusive episodes by becoming a subscriber. Enjoy. Do you know that you are making genetic changes right now? Do you know that every time you forge a new connection neurologically in your brain, that somehow the DNA inside that nerve cell has to be signaled, and the moment it's signaled in a matter of milliseconds, it grows a new branch, and it reaches out and makes a connection. That's a genetic change. So then you would have to agree with me then, if you're not learning anything new, or having any new experiences, for the most part, you're staying the same. Yes? And that the research with neuroplasticity says that your brain physically changes from every new thought you embrace, every new choice you make, every new experience you have, every new behavior you demonstrate, every new emotion that you can cultivate. There are chemical and physical changes that take place in your brain, which means you are changing your mind. How many people are with me? So when you change your brain, you change your mind. And when you change your mind, you change your brain. How many people understand? So then if you begin to learn information and you wired it in your brain, and then you keep revisiting that information, you start installing the neurological hardware, yes? If you keep revisiting it and keep reviewing it and keep firing and keep wiring, the hardware program becomes a software program. Now it becomes an automatic software program because you practiced it enough times, it becomes automatic. How many people understand? And we call those neurological networks. And neurological networks are just gangs of neurons that have fired and wired together to form a community of neurosynaptic connections. And now, if you keep revisiting it, it becomes an automatic program. So you have a neural network to brush your teeth, to put on makeup, to talk a language, to complain, drive your car. It just becomes an automatic program. You understand, yes? So the research shows that if you take a group of people who've never played the piano before, and you have them learn one-handed scales and chords, and you do a functional brain scan on their brain before the activity, and then you do a functional brain scan on their brain after the activity, if they come for two hours a day for five days, and they practice those scales and chords over and over again, at the end of five days when you scan their brain, there are physical changes in their brain. They've grown new networks of neurons. How many people are with me? Well, that makes sense, right? You learn something new, you make new connections. Knowledge is the precursor to experience. Then once you begin to get some instruction, you get your body involved, and when you get your body involved, you have a new experience, and experience enriches the brain. More neurons begin to connect because experience is more sensory input. You with me? If you pay attention to what you're doing, you have to pay attention And if you keep repeating it over and over again, the neurons begin to fire and wire, and you create a cluster of neurons to reflect your external activity. How many people understand? You got that, right? But if you take another group of people and you have them close their eyes, and you have them mentally rehearse playing the scales and chords, at the end of five days, those people who rehearsed playing the scales and chords in their mind grow the same amount of circuits in their brain as if they were physically performing the activity. In other words, when you're truly focused and you're truly paying attention, the brain does not know the difference between what's going on out there and what's going on in here. And the brain literally believes that the thought is the experience, and without lifting a finger 
it looks like they have been playing the piano for five days. In other words, it looks like the experience has already happened. How many people are with me? So it begs the question, what do you mentally rehearse all day long? And what do you physically demonstrate all day long? Because what you mentally rehearse all day long, think about, and what you physically rehearse, demonstrate, is who you are on a neurological level. How many people are with me? So then, if you're rehearsing a new way of being then, and you continuously visit what it would be like to be that person, just like the piano players, you're installing the neurological hardware ahead of the experience. You with me? If you keep repeating the experience over and over again in your mind, the hardware program becomes a software program. It becomes a new neurological network, which is an automatic program, which becomes part of your new identity. How many people are with me? A little nudge. You got that, yes? Yes? So when I say to my daughter, you can't get up from your meditation until you feel like you just shopped your brains out. She says, no problem. Because <laughs> she's going to have a great experience in there, and she's going to emotionally give her body a taste of the future. And she's going to get up like it already is done. You understand, yes? So then you may say to me, well, that's really good dinner conversation, Joe. I understand how mental rehearsal can change the brain, because you can change your brain just by thinking about it. I understand neuroplasticity, but how does it change the body? Well, I did an experiment where they took a group of people, and they had them pull a spring for an hour a day for four weeks. These were college sophomores, obviously. <laughs> <clears throat> and then they took another group of people and they had them come and mentally rehearse pulling the spring in their mind for four weeks. And all they had to do was visualize it and say, harder, stronger, harder. And they kept doing it over and over again. Well, at the end of the experiment, the people who pulled the spring had a 30% increase in muscle strength. Well, that makes sense, right? You put a load on a muscle, you take that muscle through a range of motion, there's resistance, the muscle fibers tear, and they grow back bigger. That's a genetic change. You with me? That's accommodation. But the people who mentally rehearsed pulling the spring at the end of four weeks had a 22% increase in muscle strength but they never lifted a finger. In other words, their body looked like they'd been experiencing the event ahead of the actual event, and there were physical changes in their body to look like they have been exercising their finger for four weeks. Now their body is in the future. You with me? So if there are physical changes by thought alone in your brain and body to look like the experience has already happened, then the experience has already happened. How many people understand? It's evidence in your body. Now that's when you can relax. And everybody in your life could be stressing out and you could just be connected to that destiny. How many people are with me? And that's called peace. Would you agree? So then, the process of mental rehearsal means then that you are going to imagine yourself living in that future. The choices you're going to make, the behaviors you're going to demonstrate, what you're going to do with all your wealth, how it's going to feel, what experiences you're going to create, who you're going to contribute to, how you're going to make a difference. And if you keep revisiting that same future every single day, would you agree, just like the piano players, it's going to look like it's happened here already? 
And would you agree then, in order for your muscles to be 22% stronger, you had to signal some new genes in new ways just by thought alone? Would you agree with that? But if you're thinking the same way, making the same choices, having the same experiences, same behavior, same emotions, then you keep the same genes on and the other genes off, and now you just got a limited amount of genes and you're headed for your genetic destiny. You with me? So then, research paper after research paper after research paper shows that individual genes, one gene can have 35,000 variations on one gene. One gene. So then as you begin to change your internal state and you begin to give thanks before the experience happens and you marry a clear intention with an elevated emotion and you can sustain that for an extended period of time, you're knocking on the receptor site outside of the cell. And the longer you can live in that state, the more you're signaling the gene and sooner or later that gene turns on and it makes a new protein. And the protein is an expression of life. An expression of life is the expression of health. And all of a sudden, by thought alone, you change the health of your body. Or your body begins to know what abundance is. It knows it because it becomes automatic. It becomes second nature. So then if you are then emotionally embracing the event before it's made manifest, if the emotion is the end product of an experience, your body will begin to not know the difference between the actual experience in your environment and the emotion that you're, you're creating by thought alone. And your body will begin to be signaled emotionally with new genes. So then there's a gene for nobility, would you agree? There's a gene for honor, yes? There's a gene for courage, yes? There's a gene for vitality, yes? There's a gene for genius, yes? It's in there because you got 98.5% junk DNA waiting to be used. So then there's a library of potential, a parts list of possibilities. And as you begin to signal the gene in different ways, it begins to change its expression of proteins because a gene makes a protein. So if a group of diabetics can laugh for one hour and regulate 23 new genes, if you can take a group of people that are stressed out and you teach them how to meditate and they begin to turn on over 800 genes that stimulates their immune system for health and turn off over 600 genes that have to do with the stress response, they're changing their internal state just by doing something differently. If you take a group of men with cancer and you have them simply change the way they think, how they act, and what they eat, just make different choices. They regulate 200 new genes. This is science. So then, you can signal the gene ahead of the environment because, you know, they used to say, you know, um, genes create disease. Remember that? And then they said, oh, we made a mistake. That's actually not true. It's the environment that signals the gene that creates disease. Well, how come two factory workers can work side by side, both exposed to the same carcinogenic uh, chemical, and one gets cancer and the other doesn't. Certainly there's some internal environment that's greater than the external environment, and that internal environment is still the external environment of the cell. How many people are with me? So then when you change your state of being, I want you to understand, and there's research to show this, that in one meditation you regulate new genes. And if you keep knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door, sooner or later you're going to program the gene to turn on. And when that happens, you've planted the seed in your autonomic nervous system 
will take over and do it for you. How many people are with me? So here we go. Let's lower the lights. So the first question is, does your environment control your thinking or does your thinking control your environment? The Newtonian model of reality says that you're going to wait for your wealth to come, you're going to wait for your lover to come, and then you're going to give thanks. You're going to wait for something outside of you to change how you feel inside of you. And when that event occurs, you're going to pay attention to how you feel, and you're going to decide if you like that experience, and you're going to create a memory, cause and effect. You with me? Yes. Quantum model of reality is about causing an effect. It's changing how you think and feel, broadcasting a whole new electromagnetic signature, and then watching and measuring the effects in your life with you at cause. So you are causing an effect by changing your internal state. You got that? So, same thoughts will always lead to the same choices. The same choices will always lead to the same actions and behaviors. The same behaviors will create the same experiences. And the same experiences will create the same feelings and emotions. And those same emotions will drive the same thoughts. And that's called the personality. That's your old state of being. How many people are with me? So then you would have to agree with me that new thoughts should lead to new choices, yes? And new choices should lead to new actions and behaviors, which create new experiences, which create new feelings, and that's called evolution. You understand, yes? Now your biology, your neurocircuitry, your hormones, your genetic expression, your physiology is equal to how you think, how you act, and how you feel. You understand that, yes? So then, your personality creates your personal reality. And your personality is made up of how you think, how you act, and how you feel. It's your state of being. So then, your past, present personality, the old self, is the same thoughts, the same actions, and the same feelings that keeps reaffirming your past, present life. So then, a new self then would have new thoughts, new actions, and new feelings. Would you agree? Yes. And the effect then should be a new state of being that should have some effect in your external world. You got that, yes? So, <clears throat> you control your destiny. That because of the new science of neuroplasticity, it says then you're not hardwired to be a certain way for the rest of your life. And because of the concept <clears throat> of epigenetics, you're not doomed by your genes to be a certain way for the rest of your life. Your genes are your starting point in life. And you get to select and instruct different genes because they are a library of potential, a parts list of possibility. How many people are with me? So then when you're in the midst of change and you're crossing the river of change, you have to go from the old self to the new self. And the moment you are no longer putting your attention or investing your energy in the old self, you know, you put a lot of energy in the old self. Would you agree? You keep paying attention to the emotions, you keep paying attention to the behaviors, the problems in your external environment, all of that reaffirmed the identity. So now you step into the river of change, and instead of putting your energy behind those thoughts, behind those behaviors, behind those emotions, you're observing them. And so as you observe them, you're taking energy away from the old self. And the body, which has become the mind, is craving that energy. And it's beginning to biologically, neurologically, chemically, and genetically begin to die. And so the body starts sending signals to the brain, and you start to hear chatter in your head. You know that chatter, right? It's the body craving its familiar self. So listen to this guy. Every single excuse you could possibly think of, he says. 
I'm too weak, too slow, too big. I ate too much for breakfast. Got a headache. It's raining. My dog is sick. I can't right now. I'm not inspired. It makes me smell bad. I'm allergic to stuff. I'm fat. I'm thin. It's too hot. I'm not right. I've got shin splints. Headache. I'm distracted. I'm exerting myself too much. I'd love to really, but I can't. I just can't. My favorite show is on. I got a case of the Mondays, the Tuesdays, the Wednesdays. I don't want to do this. I'm gonna do something else. After New Year's. Next week. Might make a mistake. I got homework. Well, I feel bloated. I have gas. I got a hot date. My coach hates me. Mom won't let me. I bruise easily. It's too dark. It's too cold. My blister hurts. This is dangerous. Uh, sorry, I don't have a bike. I didn't get enough sleep. My tummy hurts. It's not in my jeans. I don't want to look all tired out. I need a better coach. I don't like getting tackled. I have a stomach ache. I'm not the athletic type. I want to get sweaty. I have better things to do. I don't want to slow you down. I have to do this? As soon as I get a promotion. I think I'll sit this one out. And my feet hurt. So then if you're observing the thought without putting your energy behind it, it means you're no longer endorsing the program. Would you agree? This is change. That when you overcome yourself to the smallest measure, where you no longer believe in that thought as if it's true, you are now no longer reinforcing the circuits that have been firing and wiring together, and you begin to settle down the old self. You with me? And people who cross the river of change face their doubt, face their fear. They face their limitations. They face their emotions. They face their habituations. And they understand then that in order to go from the old self to the new self, there's a void that they have to cross. And once they understand that they are stepping into the unknown and it's uncomfortable, it's unfamiliar, it's unpredictable, and they can begin to realize that when they are there, it's a good idea to create a new state of being right there because if they're creating a new state of being, they're biologically, neurologically, chemically, endocrinologically reinforcing and genetically a new self. Now they're crossing the river faster. How many people understand? So I said that you can regulate 23 new genes just by moving into an elevated state, just by changing your state. Now, for those of you who don't know how to move into a new state of being, which is state of being is how you think and how you feel because thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body. And when you combine how you think and how you feel, you create a state of being. Watch this young kid. Look, I can be a shark. Now, my whole house is great. I can do anything good. I like my school. I like anything. I like my dad. I like my cousins. I like my aunts. I like my Allison's. I like my mom. I like my sisters. I like my dad. she's going to have a good day? <laughs> it's that simple. Moving into a new state of being, she's choosing all the things that she's grateful for. Now, when you react to something in your life, you turn on a primitive nervous system called your fight-or-flight nervous system. 
The fight or flight nervous system, the moment you perceive a threat in your external environment, the neocortex associates the image in the external world with the image imprinted in the brain, and it sends a signal to the limbic brain that sends a, an electrochemical signal down the spinal cord and turns on the adrenal glands. The moment the adrenal glands are turned on, they begin to squirt out a certain amount of adrenaline. The moment the adrenaline is released in the body, there's a physiological change. The pupils dilate, the salivary juices shut down, it's not the time to eat a steak. <clears throat> your heart rate increases, your respiratory rate increases, and blood is sent to your extremities. And now you're prepared to either fight or run. How many people understand that? And that is for the optimal chances of survival, and this system is very adaptive when there's a threat in your, in your external environment. But it doesn't have to be a lion. <clears throat> it could be your mother-in-law, and the same exact thing happens. <laughs> you react to the same condition in your life because you had some past experiences with your mother-in-law, and you're viewing your mother-in-law as a predator. And you're knocking your body out of balance by a reaction to something based on your past, and you are turning on the same primitive hormones to cause you to perceive your mother-in-law as a threat through the lens of the past. How many people understand? So now once, what was once highly adaptive becomes very maladaptive because the moment you begin to weigh in on your mother-in-law based on a past experience, if you had some stressful events with her, you're going to be ready for the next stressful event and you're going to try to predict the future based on the past. How many people are with me? So then we're always getting ready for the worst case scenario and protecting ourselves in case something goes wrong. And when we get it right, you know what we say? You need to hang out with me because I'm really smart. But what happens when you don't get it right? That's called anxiety. That's called OCD. That's called insomnia. That's called neurosis. That's called depression because you're knocking your body out of balance. You still with me? But it doesn't even have to be your mother-in-law. You can auto-suggest. You could think things equal to how you feel. And as you begin to think those certain thoughts, you turn on the stress response just by thought alone because that thought is where you're putting your attention. And all of a sudden, you activate the, the um, amygdala. The amygdala, uh, amygdala sends a signal to the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus makes a blend of neuropeptides that signals the pituitary. And all of a sudden now, you're sending chemical information. You get a rush of energy now, and your body goes through the same physiological response just by thought alone. How many people are with me? And so then when you turn on the stress response and you can't turn it off and you become addicted to those thoughts because they carry a high emotional quotient, then sooner or later you keep knocking your body out of balance just by thought alone. And that imbalance becomes the new balance and now a person is headed for disease because of chemicals of stress push the genetic buttons that create disease. So our thoughts literally can make us sick. How many people are with me? Now, in the first two pictures, that particular syndrome is with the adrenal axis, and that adrenal mechanism down the spinal cord is what I call the fast track. It happens in moments to seconds to hours. This one is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. This is the release of cortisol, and cortisol lasts for hours to days. One is short-term, the other is long-term. Cortisol is the anti-inflammation, anti-pain chemical. If you're getting chased by a lion or you're, you're battling with a tribe of angry uh, tribesmen, 
The cortisol helps you to reduce the amount of pain in your body, so if you're fighting or you're running, you can do it for an extended period of time. But cortisol, in the long term, begins to break the immune system down because the, uh, the chemicals are, are very, very toxic to the immune system because all of your energy is going for your external environment and there's no energy for growth and repair. It's like, it's like there's a hurricane coming through Austin. It's an emergency situation. You're not going to think about remodeling your kitchen, right? There's no energy for long-term building projects because the body is interpreting a threat in the external environment. It's not a time to go within. It's not a time to, for growth. And so if you keep the body in emergency mode, sooner or later there's no energy for growth and repair or long-term building projects. You got that? Uh, poke the person next to you, please. This is called the parasympathetic nervous system. This is the nervous system of relaxation. When you eat that big Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner, all of a sudden your salivary juices increase, your pupils constrict, your blood flow is sent to your internal organs away from your heart, and your body now is in growth and repair. And if I said to you, hey, come on, let's go jump on the trampoline a little bit, you would say, dude, tomorrow. <laughs> now, we live in two states of mind. The first state of mind is called survival. That's the animal part of us. Living in survival is living in stress. When you are in stress, you become contracted. You become, you contract from your environment because there's a threat in the external world. We could say that when you contract, you become more particle and less wave. <clears throat> the body goes into catabolism, which is tissue breakdown. There's dis-ease or imbalance that's created. You have degeneration. The primary emotions of fear, anger, and sadness or aggression are the primary emotions that are driven by the hormones of stress. All other emotions like guilt and shame are variations and blends of these. You become selfish. It's all about the self. You define the self as a body living in the environment, living in linear time. Energy is always lost in the system because you're mobilizing enormous amounts of it. You're living in emergency mode and you become very narrow focus or very object focus. You know when you're in stress, you're obsessing about one thing all the time and people are saying, well, what about this and what about that? And you keep viewing the same possibility. You're not open to other possibilities and you're focusing on your external environment and you're focusing on an object. You're focusing on a particle and you're missing or eliminating or editing out possibility. How many people are with me? This is what we say you feel separate from possibility because you're more matter and less energy. You're more particle and less wave. You're determining reality by your senses, and if you're determining reality by your senses, where you put your attention is where you put your energy, so now you're trapped in three dimensions. You're living by cause and effect. There are limited possibilities because you're trying to forecast the future based on the past, and you're missing out on possibilities. How many people are with me? The brain is in a state of incoherence. We'll talk about that after lunch. It's imbalanced and you are focusing on the knowns because this is not a time to welcome the unknown. It's a time to run from the unknown because there's better chances of survival in running from the unknown. Does that make sense? If a deer is in the forest and all of a sudden a logging truck pulls up and a big machine gets off and starts screeching and the, the deer sees this big machine and it's yellow and it hears the sound and it smells the vapor in the air and it tastes the diesel and feels the ground rumbling under its feet, 
it's going to run from the unknown because there's better chances of survival and fleeing. You with me? So then if you're living by the hormones of stress all day long, wouldn't you agree then you're going to run from any unknown possibility? You know, the aliens are going to land in the backyard and they're going to have the ship and, and you're going to be like, well, um, can you come back on Tuesday? Dancing with the Stars is on tonight. <laughs> or, geez, are you going to have... I don't eat carbohydrates. Are you guys going to have food for me? You know, we, we, we tend to run from the unknown. So then, when you begin to... And by the way, as a side note, there's a reason for that. Because the chemicals of stress, the cortisol, actually begins to denature the fibers in your hippocampus. Your hippocampus is the part of your brain that consolidates memories. It's what makes known the unknown. So then, if you take a group of laboratory rats and you teach them a maze, and they go through a maze, and then you ask these volunteers if they want to donate their hippocampi to science, and they all say yes, of course, and you radiate their hippocampus on both sides, and you put those rats back in the maze, do you know that they never go to any new areas? They stay in the known. You with me? So then, if you begin to denature the neurons in your hippocampus because of the hormones of stress, you will always crave the familiar. You'll stay in the known and never venture into the unknown. You with me? Now, good news. Because one of the areas of the brain that actually regenerates is called the hippocampus. There's new neurons that grow in the hippocampus every time you learn an experience. So then, if you're damaging the very machinery that crave adventure and crave the unknown, then you have no mechanisms to want to embrace possibility. But if you begin to break the addiction to the hormones of stress, and you begin to get beyond them, the hippocampus will naturally regenerate. And all of a sudden, you'll crave adventure again. You'll want to leave the shire. <laughs> Stop eating bacon and eggs. Now, our divine aspect of ourself, our creative aspect of ourself, is when we are in homeostasis, when we are expanding, we're emulating the universe. There's anabolism, which is tissue repair. There's health, there's order, there's regeneration. The elevated emotions of love, joy, trust, knowing, gratitude, the natural state of being, all of a sudden become the emotions that drive us to a new future and no longer keep us anchored in the past. We become selfless, which means now we're no longer defining the self as the primary mechanism. The world revolves around us. We are now contributing and wanting to make a difference. We were considering the community. The process of creation requires becoming no thing, no body, no one, nowhere, no time. <clears throat> Energy is always created in the process of creation. There's growth and repair going on. We tend to open our focus. We see possibilities that we would never see before because now we're no longer limiting our mind. We feel connected to possibility. We're determining reality beyond our senses. We're focusing on the wave instead of the particle. Well, people will say to you, oh, that reality is such nonsense. You say, actually, it is. <laughs> because I haven't experienced it with my senses yet, but I'll call you when it happens. Because <laughs> quantum physics is nonsense. Oh, that's so unrealistic. That's right, that reality... I'm working on it, and I'll call you when it manifests. So it's a reality beyond the senses. You are causing an effect. You are producing an effect. 
you're connected to all possibilities, I can tell you from experience, I have had moments where I have connected to this intelligence that's within us, and I have felt so whole and so complete that I didn't want the moment to end. I did not want to get up. I didn't want to go anywhere. I just want only the only thing I could say to myself was, memorize this feeling. Memorize this feeling. This is who you really are. And it is the most familiar, unfamiliar feeling you'll ever have. And that's when you begin to drink from a deeper well. <clears throat> and the brain naturally goes into orderliness or coherence. We'll talk about that after lunch. And now you are craving the unknown. You are craving possibility because you are focusing on the 99.999% of reality that is possibility. You're no longer putting your attention on the particle, on matter, and determining it with your senses. You've just taken your attention off it and put it on possibility. How many people are with me? Now, give your person next to you just a slight little poke. Poke the particle. So now, little quantum physics, little quantum physics, you're geniuses, right? So, quantum model of reality, right? All of a sudden, you know, you know Descartes and Newton are, you know, are defining reality as mind and matter as separate. Descartes didn't really want to be bothered by mind because it was too convoluted. And so he said, look, I want to do my research, so we'll create the sphere of science, and that'll be studying matter, and then there'll be the sphere of the mind, and that'll be religion. So, so science was always matter, never mind. And religion was always mind, never matter. And they were never to be combined. You got it? Newton comes along and he says, F equals MA, I got some laws here, I got some mathematics, and I'm going to prove that everything that Descartes said is true. There's the outer world, the objective world, that's very predictable. And because of Newton, we can shoot a rocket to the moon. You can know that when you fly from New York to LA, you're going to know exactly when you're going to land because someone's going to calculate the wind and the speed and the takeoff and all that stuff. And to the minute, you're going to land exactly as anticipated. It's predictable. You with me? And Newtonian physics is very, very important for us to function because it gives us understandings in time and space. Einstein comes along and he says what? E equals mc squared. The moment he says E equals mc squared, he publishes his paper. And guess what? No footnotes. He didn't say, this person said this, this person said this, so I'm going to say this. He said, ladies and gentlemen, this is how it is. I had a vision, I saw it, and I got to learn the mathematics to explain the vision. And what he really was saying was that matter and energy were somehow related. And the currency converter is the speed of light. And nothing could move faster than the speed of light. So then all of a sudden, these physicists get together, Planck and Einstein, and they start disturbing the electrons in metal. And they're going to look to see how the electron behaves. So they're expecting it to behave just like an apple falling from the tree or the planets rotating around the sun. It's going to, when it loses energy, it's going to fall towards the, the, the larger mass, the Earth. So when you disturb the electron, it should move like a ball rolling down a hill towards the, the nucleus of the atom. But when they disturb the electron, it doesn't do that. It gains energy, then it loses energy. It gains energy, then it loses energy. Instead of looking like a ball rolling down the hill, it's more like a ball dropping down a flight of stairs. Now, all of a sudden, the very tiny world is not behaving like the very large world. You with me? So then they start looking for the electron to try to measure it, to observe it. And guess what? Everywhere they look for the electron, it appears. 
So they take their attention off the electron and it goes back into possibility. So the electron exists in all these probable fields of information. The moment the observer comes along and looks, it collapses from energy into a particle. And that's called collapsing the wave function or a quantum event. You with me? Give me a nod. Yes? But guess what happens? The moment the observer takes her attention off it and looks the other way, that particle goes back into possibility. You with me? So then, all of a sudden, mind and matter are somehow related. Subjective mind has an effect on the objective world. And somehow, mind and matter are so intimately related, it's impossible to distinguish either one of them. You still with me? Yes? So here's the question. If you're observing your life from the same level of mind, you as the quantum observer are causing infinite waves of possibility to collapse into the same patterns of information called your life. Would you, are you with me? And if you're living by the stress hormones and you're more matter and less energy, then your observation doesn't have an effect too much on matter because you're matter trying to change matter. How many people are still with me? And so people will say to me, well, I didn't create that car accident. How did I create that car accident? I wasn't focused on the car accident. And I always say, well, you created that car accident by not creating. You created it by default. If you're not creating, you're left to the randomness of reality and something's going to bump into you. How many people understand? So then, think about this. If you take your attention for a period of time, you as the quantum observer, off the problems in your life, off your pain in your body, off your past and your emotions, wouldn't you agree then, you as the quantum observer, if you could become nobody, no one, no thing, nowhere, no time, to surrender as a thought in possibility, wouldn't you agree then, you as the quantum observer, are causing patterns of information called particles to turn back into possibility. How many people are with me? And so then the moment you keep revisiting your life from the same level of mind, you keep freezing reality into the same patterns. You get the idea? So then you can't create a future as a victim or an insecure or hopeful or worried. Because that's the past. To emulate the divine is to be divine, is to be expanded, it's to be unlimited, it's to be invincible. And when it comes time to command matter this afternoon, and you move into a new state of being, you better be big. And you better feel invincible, and the hair on the back of your neck has to stand up because you are commanding destiny. You're the observer. And the moment you take your attention off your known life and you put it on your future and your brain doesn't know the difference, you're causing infinite patterns of information to collapse into new particles called a quantum event or an experience in your life. And people have done it over and over again. How many people are with me? I got sidetracked there. Anyway, you have two memory systems in your brain. You with me? Okay, good. So you, the first type of memories are called declarative memories. Now, you ready for this? Declarative memories are just memories that you can declare. Is that easy? And declarative memories are also called explicit memories, and they're the seed of your conscious awareness. Now, you have two types of declarative memories. The first one 
is called knowledge, facts, information that you learn. And we call that semantics. And that's stored in your thinking neocortex, your thinking brain. The philosopher, the theologian, the analytical mind. You with me? So you read the book on how to build a doghouse. You read a book on how to be wealthy. You read a book on how to lead. You read a book, read a book on how to be a more patient parent. And all that information is stored in your philosophical, analytical, theoretical, intellectual neocortex. You with me? So then, the second type of declarative memory is through experience, through the events in your life. They're called episodic memories. And that's stored in your thinking and feeling brain, your neocortex, and your limbic brain. Now, this is the autobiographical self. If I've learned these things and I experience these things, I can declare them. Would you agree? So I know I'm a man. I know I wear a size nine and a half shoe. I know I like garlic mashed potatoes. I know my chemistry teacher had bushy eyebrows. I know I have three kids. I know I have 20 horses. I know a few things about neuroscience. I know a few things about the body. I know a few things about health because I either learned them or experienced them. And that's the autobiographical me. You with me? So then, if you learn a bit of information, let's say you read the book on success and you get the companion CDs and you do the webinar. And you get all this information stored in your thinking brain. And now you apply that, you personalize it or you demonstrate it. You're going to have to modify your behavior in some way. And if you change your actions and you do something differently, you're going to have a new experience. Would you agree? The moment you have a new experience, you create a feeling. And the moment you create a feeling, you activate the limbic brain or the emotional brain. So then when you restrain your behaviors that keep you doing the same thing and you start doing something new, when you have the experience and the check shows up in the mail, all of a sudden you feel wealthy. You feel successful. Or you lead in some way and you get your behaviors to match your intentions and actions equal to your thoughts and your mind and body and working together. All of a sudden you feel like a leader or a patient parent. And so the emotional quotient then teaches the body to understand what the mind is intellectually understood. So knowledge is for the mind and experience is for the body. And in that moment, you are embodying knowledge. You got it? And you are signaling new genes in new ways. So then, it's not enough to do it once, though. You have to be able to repeat the experience over and over again. And if you keep doing it over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, all of a sudden, it becomes non-declarative. Now, you know what non-declarative means? You've done it so many times, you don't even know how to declare it. You don't even know how you do it. It's subconscious. It's automatic. It's implicit. It's who you are. So you can't consciously even describe how you do it because it's a skill now. It's a habit. It's a behavior. It's an emotional reaction. It's, you've conditioned your body to be the mind. And this is when you activate the third brain called the cerebellum, the seat of the subconscious. Now, 95% of who you are exists in this non-declarative system. How many people are still with me? So you have an implicit memory to brush your teeth, you have an implicit memory to put makeup on, you have an implicit memory to wash yourself in the shower, to drive your car and go through the same routine behaviors. All of those things have become subconscious automatic programs. And that's where 95% of who you are exists. You with me? Now here's the question. If you were to change, then if 95% of who you are is here, wouldn't it be a good idea to become conscious of your unconscious thoughts? Become aware of your unconscious habits and begin to go into the operating system and become aware of your emotional reactions. And the more conscious you become of these unconscious states, the more control and dominion you have over them. Would you agree? Yes. So then, you learn a bit of knowledge. 
That's called philosophy. You apply that knowledge, you initiate it, you do something about it, you have a new experience, and then you move into a state of being if you can repeat the experience. And that's my definition of enlightenment, by the way. Knowing that you know, because you're in a state of being. So you can be an enlightened victim, because you know that you know how to do that, right? And this is when it's innate in you. Or you can be a wealthy, abundant person because it's part of your state of being, because you've experienced it enough times. How many people are with me? So a friend of mine, I went, met with him in New York, and we had lunch together, and I was running through New York, and he's a successful businessman. His name is Jerry, and I rush off to the table, and he's already ordered lunch for me because I'm late, I'm in New York traffic, and he's an old elderly man, and we sit down, and he's got this big hamburger. And I sit down and go, hey, Jerry, how's it going? I haven't seen you in a while. He said, oh, uh, today I lost everything that I owned. Eat your salad. And I'm kind of putting the salad in my mouth. He goes, pass the ketchup. Pass the ketchup. I kind of pass the ketchup over to him. And he's, like got a, he's got the mayonnaise and ketchup in his mustache. And he's looking at me like, what? I go, Jerry, you just told me you lost everything that you owned. He's like, what? I am wealth. What are you talking about? I'll make it back in two weeks. It's who I am. There was no loss in his mind. It was just a choice. Because he knows that he knows. How many people understand? When you get to a state of being, you have memorized an internal neurochemical order that nothing outside of you could move you from it. It is knowingness. How many people understand? So knowledge, knowing, knowingness. Now here's the question. Can you go from thinking to being without doing anything? Come on, give me an answer. Absolutely. Why? Because the moment you begin to rehearse mentally a new state of being through the frontal lobe, you're going to activate new circuits in new ways to create a new level of mind. Would you agree? Now, if you become so possessed by that experience internally that the thought becomes the experience, what's the end product of an experience? An emotion. Come on, give me a nod. So the moment it becomes an emotion, now you activate the second brain called the feeling brain. And if how you think and how you feel creates a state of being, your body is being conditioned emotionally to a new mind ahead of the actual event. You with me? If you can revisit the experience over and over again, and you're thinking and feeling differently, you keep practicing it, the body becomes the mind, or the mind and body merge as one, or you memorize a neurochemical state, and now you are in a state of being. And you just went from thinking to being without doing anything. And when you're in that state of being, and you get up, you're more prone to do things and think things from that state of being. How many people are with me? Some people say to me, oh, uh, Dr. Joe, well, that's fake it till you make it. I'm like, really, really? Did you ever drive down the road and you're thinking about telling off that coworker? You know, and you start thinking, oh, my God, this is what I'm going to say to her. And you're driving down the road and you become so possessed by the thought that the internal picture becomes more real than the external world, and you're rehearsing what you're going to do, and the thought becomes the experience, and neurotransmitters activate neuropeptides, and neuropeptides signal your adrenal glands, and all of a sudden you're getting a rush of adrenaline. And then you say, oh, no, 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 no. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write an email. And all of a sudden you're in your mind driving the work writing this email. 
and all of a sudden the chemicals are happening. No, 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 no. You know what I'm going to do? We're, I'm going to get the boss. And we're going to go in. We're going to sabotage her. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell her. And you start running through these scenarios, and the thought becomes the experience. Would you agree that sooner or later it's going to get into the body, and you're going to make the hormones to prepare you for the event by thought alone? You get to work, hello, slam the door, walking, talking maniac. And all you did was drive to work. You went from thinking to being without doing anything. Would you agree? Or are you sitting and you have a sexual fantasy and you become so involved in the fantasy that the inner picture becomes more real than the external world? And all of a sudden you open your eyes and you're feeling differently and being differently than when you close them. Would you agree? You went from thinking to being without doing anything. And that is the purpose of meditation, is to move into a state of being and allow the inner picture to become the experience and emotionally teach your body what that event is going to be like ahead of the actual event. So when you combine that intention with an elevated emotion, you are in a new state of being. And if you keep practicing it over and over again, it will become familiar to you. And wouldn't you agree with me then that in your life, when you are falling from grace, if you are moving into a new state of being every day, shouldn't you be able to excuse yourself when you're knocked out of balance and bring up that state of being on command just because you've practiced it so many times? Isn't that the purpose of all of this? Turn the person next to you and tell them how you go from thinking to being. Here we go. Three brains neocortex, limbic brain, cerebellum that allow you to go from thinking to doing to being. Knowledge, experience, wisdom. A memory without the emotional charge is called wisdom. Wisdom is that you know how to recreate the experience and if you want to or not. Knowledge is for the mind, experience is for the body, wisdom is for the soul. Mental rehearsal is thinking about it, reviewing it, contemplating it. Physical rehearsal is demonstrating it. That is the neurological self. Intention, when you get your behaviors to match your intention, you're headed towards a destiny. Thoughts and feelings create a memorized self or a state of being. Thought sends the signal out. The feeling draws the event back, and that's how you manifest destiny. Thought is the electrical charge in the quantum field. Feeling is the magnetic charge. How you think and how you feel broadcasts an electromagnetic field that creates reality. You start learning with your head. You practice it with your hands. You finally know it by heart. Learning something new, getting instruction means you get your body involved. Once you get your body involved, you need feedback to let you know that what you're doing is correct. And so if you are creating reality, wouldn't it be a good idea to ask the quantum field, okay, big dog, I'm emulating you today. I took time out of my busy day. My busy day to emulate you as a creator. But here's the deal. I can't see you, and I can't taste you. I can't feel you. But I know you're giving me life, so if I'm going to emulate you, I'm going to show you what I want. You, you observe what I'm observing. Empower my observation. But um, look, I need a sign. I need to know that you're real, and I, I, know that, I need to know that you're paying attention to my efforts. And bring it in a way that catches me off guard, that leaves no doubt, I can't talk myself out of it, that it's come from you, so that I'm inspired to do it again. So would you agree then that once you see feedback in your world, you're going to pay attention to what you did and you'll do it again? Yes? That's called going quantum. So you go from the philosopher to the initiate to the master. 
How many people understand this? It's called evolution. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is not an action, but a habit. That's Aristotle. So you start out unconsciously unskilled. You know what that means? You don't even know that you don't even know. That's bliss, right? And then you learn a bit of information and you become consciously unskilled. And I tell my kids, you need at least one of these a day. Now, if you keep practicing, you become consciously skilled. Now, I want to tell you something. This is where most people stop. The person who continues and keeps going and supersedes their boredom, why do you have to go past your boredom? Because boredom means it's becoming familiar to you. It's becoming routine. It's becoming automatic. And if you continue a little bit past your boredom with a greater level of awareness, it will become unconsciously skilled. Now it's automatic. It's second nature. You don't even have to think about it. And when I start getting bored with my creation, I know I'm getting close. How many people are with me? So, <clears throat> three brains. Here's the neocortex. That's your thinking brain right there. It's the largest in human beings and dolphins. It's the latest piece of neurological machinery. Right underneath it, the size of an apricot, is called the limbic brain or the emotional brain. And back here is called the cerebellum, thinking, doing, being. Three brains. How many people got it? Now, neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is our brain's ability to make, to change its synaptic wiring by learning information, by recording experiences. There's physical changes when you do that. And then to be able to mo maintain a modified state of being. Plasticity allows us to evolve our actions and modify our behaviors so that we can do a better job in life. Does that make sense? Now, neurorigidity, that's a word that I made up. But it's only using our brain's pre-wired synaptic connections, our memories, without ever making any new connections. <clears throat> it's never learning from experience. Rigidity is to process the same thoughts and perform the same actions and expect a different result. And you know what that is, yes? So rigidity, then, is thinking inside the box. It's making the brain fire in the same sequences, in the same patterns, and in the same combinations over and over again, and you hardwire your brain into a very finite signature. It's living life from past memories without learning new things and having new experiences. It's keeping the brain firing in the same pattern. How many people got that? So then thinking outside the back box is plasticity. It's making the brain fire in new sequences and new patterns and new combinations. And whenever you make your brain work differently, you're changing your mind. Because mind is the brain in action. How many people are still with me? So then if we look at plasticity, it's learning new things, creating new experiences, and making new memories. It's making the brain fire in new ways. And the one ingredient that allows us to do that is knowledge and information. Yes? So the neuron is the simplest functional unit of the nervous system. They possess the unique ability to store and communicate information between each other. This is a, a neocortical neuron. It's in your thinking brain. It has between 10,000 and 40,000 connections uh, per neuron. If you take a scoop of gray matter the size of a grain of sand, there's 100,000 neurons in it with over a billion connections. But these neurons are not two-dimensional. They're actually three-dimensional. They communicate in all directions. <clears throat> and it is the function of your gray matter. And every place where one neuron connects with another neuron, they are exchanging information. 
So we could say then that learning is making new synaptic connections. And if you learned anything today, this is what your brain did. Eh, I wonder if he's from New York. He talks kind of fast, you know. Uh, oh, only I'm going to pay attention. Oh my gosh, I understand. Every time you learn something new, there's a physical change in your brain just like this. This is what I call the aha phenomenon, one whole network of neurons connecting with another network of neurons. The sum of the parts is greater than the whole, and all of a sudden, communities of neurons are exchanging information in a holographic fashion, and you say, aha, I understand. This is change, unhooking from the old self, reconnecting to the new self. This is real time, by the way. <clears throat> this is a new experience, jungles of neurons organizing themselves to reflect the event in your external environment. So if learning is making new synaptic connections, then remembering is maintaining and sustaining those connections. And just like any relationship, the more we communicate, the more bonded we become. And neurons are exactly the same way. They want to develop long-term relationships. And what makes them develop long-term relationships is repetition. So if you keep firing and wiring and firing and wiring, finally they seal together. How many people understand that? Now, there's two ways you make synaptic connections in your brain. We said this already. Learning information, theory, knowledge, philosophy, we call that semantics. You with me? Or having novel events are called episodic memories, embracing new events or experiences in your life. Yes? So there's a principle in neuroscience that says nerve cells that fire together wire together. And it's called Hebbian learning. Now, we have two laws of the brain. You with me? Come on, let's get over this hump. We're going to break for lunch, I swear. We're creating your future. Come on, hang in there with me. How's your energy? Is it okay? So you have two laws of the brain. The first law of the brain is called the law of association. The law of association says you're going to use what's stored in your brain to learn new information. You're going to use what's already wired in your brain to wire new information in your brain. You're going to use knowns to understand unknowns. You with me? So if I said to you, receptor sites on the outside of the cell look like craters on the moon, but they're actually not like craters. They're more like flowers, like lilies sitting on water. And in the center of that flower is where a chemical fits. But there's an antenna on the outside beyond the flower. And when a chemical comes along, it's like dropping a pebble into a water. There's a little wave that the antenna picks up, and the flower changes its shape. And like a kaleidoscope, the chemical fits into the receptor site like a key fitting into a lock. And it sends a lightning bolt of information to the DNA. And the DNA unwinds, unzips, like unzipping your zipper. Now, what did I just do? I introduced a new thought, an unknown, called what? Receptor sites. Now, many people in this audience may not get a visual of receptor sites. So how am I going to explain the model? I'm going to use what's stored in your brain. And what did I say? Craters on the moon, flowers, antennas, pebbles in water, kaleidoscopes, locks and keys, lightning bolts zippers. And as your brain began to fire different networks of neurons, the moment the brain turned on to create a level of mind, boom, we made a new connection. And that new connection associates with all of that information. And if I said to you, hey, what's a receptor site? You'd say, oh, they're kind of like craters on the moon, you know, but really, you know, they're more like flowers and there's antennas and there's a kaleidoscope and you go through that whole thing. 
How many people understand? You with me? So then here's the question. <clears throat> if you were to create a new ideal of yourself, wouldn't you agree that it would be a good idea to read about great people in history? I mean, Nelson Mandela is my hero. He's been my hero for years, 27 years in prison. I'm never going to get out of here. I'm never going to get out of here. I'm never going to get out of here. Ten years of saying that, firing and wiring his brain. All of a sudden, he's looking out his cell, and all of a sudden, he has this thought. What if I could get out of here? He said his heart spoke to him. What, could, what if I could get out of here? What if I could get out of here? Frontal lobe question. Starts thinking about how can I get out of here? How could I get out of here? He's thinking out of the box. He starts writing letters to the United States on apartheid, educating them every week. For months, all of a sudden, the United States starts paying attention. He's standing out in the courtyard, and now the United States is, 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 is you know, backing him. And he's standing there, and he says, who's going to lead this nation? Who is going to lead this nation? He's asking himself the question, and his heart spoke to him again, and you know what it said? What if you could lead this nation? And then he asked the most fundamental, important question that made him transcend race. And he said, how would I have to be to lead this nation? And he went into the crucible. And he took those base emotions of anger and hostility and prejudice and turned them into gold. There isn't an ounce of malice in that man's body. He transcended his environment. And he gets to lead a nation so that he overcame the adversity in his life, gives you permission to do the same. And he was beyond race. He said, I'm, he's, he's the last great leader in the world to me, and the Dalai Lama too. Leading by example. And so he said, you could take away everything. You can take away everything in my life. I could lose everything, but you'll never take my mind, and you'll never take my heart. And because he understood that, he became a true leader. So wouldn't you agree then, if you read about great people in history, you're more prone to associate with them by the law of association? Yes? So the law of association then says you're going to use what's stored in your brain to, make, to learn new information. You're going to use existing synaptic connections or existing circuits to build new circuits. You're going to use what's familiar to, to learn unfamiliar. You're going to use old memories to make new memories. You're going to use knowns to understand unknowns. You're going to use existing synaptic connections to make new connections. You're going to use what's stored in your brain from the past to create a new future. That's called evolution. You with me? Now, the second law of the brain is called the law of repetition. <clears throat> and if you keep repeating something over and over again, 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 there comes a moment where the neurons release this chemical, this miracle grow, this fertilizer that causes them to stick together and then develop more enriched connections. You with me? So then think of a braille reader whose whole entire mind is in these two fingers. And if you look at a functional brain scan of a person reading braille, you and I, these two fingers, we have about a centimeter assigned to these two fingers in our sensory cortex. When a person who's reading braille is using these two fingers, that whole side of the brain, huge assignment of real estate is for these two fingers because that's where their awareness is. So now more areas now are working because that's where their consciousness and their awareness is. You with me? But if you do an autopsy on their brain 
and you look at the number of connections in this part of the brain, it's way more enriched. It's way more refined because they fired and wired over and over again, and they can pick up the subtleties that you can't because you don't have the wiring to pick it up. How many people understand? The wine connoisseur who tastes and reviews and scents and smells and looks and learns is firing and wiring and picking up the subtleties of wine that, that is different than the person that drinks box of wine. Would you agree? <laughs> so then, as you begin to repeat something over and over again, you release these neurotrophic hormones, these neurotrophic chemicals. And they are what cause neurons to stick and become more enriched. So repetition then, repeating something over and over again, a thought, an action, a feeling, all of a sudden makes it easy. It makes it familiar. It makes it common. It makes it natural. It makes it automatic, routine, habitual, effortless. Second nature, subconscious, unconscious, it becomes implicit. Now, all of a sudden now, you fired and wired it now, and it becomes an automatic neurological network. So, neural growth factor, that glue or miracle grow makes new synaptic connections stick, become more enhanced and flourish. They're also called neurotropins. So, these are neurons that have neural growth factor sprinkled on them. Look what they're like Italians with cell phones. <laughs> Look at these guys. No neural growth factor. And what are the two ways you make neural growth factor in your brain? Learning something new and repeating it and having novel experiences in your life. Am I making sense? Now, this is the beauty. Law of association is how you learn, and the law of repetition is how you remember. You with me? Give the person next to you a little bump. Now, neural networks, those networks of neurons that you form are are developed by combining the law of association, learning new things, along with the law of repetition, repeating them and remembering them to create a new level of mind or to make your brain fire in new ways. Now, neural networks are the automatic, hardwired programs that we unconsciously and automatically use every day. You with me? So here's my question. Are you making a neural network today? Yes. Are you learning new information? Are you repeating it? Yes. And if you keep repeating it, are you firing and wiring it to create a new level of mind? Yes. To make your brain fire in new ways? Yes. So there's genetic changes going on in your brain right now. Yes? And if you keep repeating it, the hardware program becomes a software program. You understand that, yes? So a neural network then are just gangs of neurons that have fired and wired together to form a community of neurosynaptic connections. And it could be related to a concept, an idea, a thought process, a memory, skill, behavior, or an action. You with me? So here we go. This is a neural network. If you take a scoop of gray matter the size of a pea and you stretch neurons out end to end, it'll be two miles long. This is the chemical component of neural networks. See how they look like spaghetti? Love association. <clears throat> but there's actually an electrical component to neurons. You want to see a thought? Here we go. There's a thought. Watch again. You generate more electrical impulses in your brain in one day than all of the cell phones on the planet put together. And it's not coming from the candy bar you ate on the break either. You are connected to the field. 
Your brain is the superconductor of consciousness. It sends and receives information. So, <clears throat> neural networks are the automatic hardwired programs that we use every day. The average speed of neurological transmission in a network of neurons is between 200 and 300 miles per hour. <clears throat> you with me? Yeah. Now, <clears throat> let's revisit neuroplasticity. It's to fire a series of many diverse networks of neurons in different combinations, sequences, orders, and patterns to produce a new level of mind and to be able to repeat that same frame of mind at will and make it look natural and easy. Would you agree? So then, the more you revisit it, the more you begin to seal the deal. Now, your frontal lobe is your creative center. That is where you create from. It allows you 40% of the entire brain to have free will, to have where you learn. It's where you have intention. It's where you invent possibilities. It's where you pay attention. It's where you speculate. It's where you decide. It's where you begin to control your behavior. It's when you focus and concentrate. It's when you restrain yourself from emotional reactions. It's the boss. It's the CEO. It's the symphony leader. It is the seat of your conscience. And that's what allows you to observe who you're being so you can change and modify to produce a new outcome. Learn from your mistakes. How many people understand? Now, when the frontal lobe is in full operation, if you truly meditate or you truly create, something amazing happens. The frontal lobe, like a volume control, doesn't want to be distracted by any extraneous stimulation. So what it does is it lowers the circuits in your brain that process time and space. And so as the frontal lobe turns on, it begins to activate this motor center and it quiets the circuits down in your motor center and you become still, you move into a trance. It silences the circuits in your sensory center and you no longer feel your body. You become nobody. It cools off or shuts the lights out in the parietal lobe where you process time and space. And if there's no mind to process time and space, there is no time and space. If it cools off the circuits in the uh, visual cortex, you're driving down the road. You no longer even see your environment. If it cools off and shuts the lights out in the temporal lobe where your identity exists with people and problems and things and pets and conditions, all of a sudden there's no mind to process it, then there is no one there. It cools off the circuits in the survival centers of the brain, and the thought that you're thinking literally becomes the experience, and the brain upscales the thought as the experience. How many people understand? So then, you hear that hum? That hum's been going on all day long. But your frontal lobe lowered the volume to it because it wasn't important to you. Do you understand? So then would you agree then if you're truly in an elegant state of meditation or contemplation or cre creative state that the pain in your back should disappear because your attention isn't on it because you're greater than your body? Wouldn't you agree then you're no longer con connected to your present past reality because your attention is no longer on it, yes? And you're no longer predicting your future based on your past because you're outside of linear time. Would you agree? So now... If you then begin to think about what a greater way to be is, and you begin to ask yourself, what is compassion, or what is greatness, or what is unlimited mind, 
The moment you begin to ask that frontal lobe question, your frontal lobe only has a certain amount of resources, and it's all stored in your brain from the things you learn or you experience. You with me? So you say, what is compassion? And you go, oh, I read the book on compassion. That was pretty good. And you activate those networks of neurons. Oh, my Aunt Mary was really compassionate with me. I remember that. Oh, yeah, I saw the video with the Dalai Lama on compassion. Ooh, I had that experience where I felt compassionate. Boy, do I have a lot of compassion for myself. And as you select these different networks of neurons, it creates a level of mind. Once they fire in tandem, you get an internal representation, and that's called an intention, a clear picture in your mind. So you would have to agree then, the more knowledge and experience you store in your brain, the more you can build a greater intention or a greater future. Would you agree? <clears throat> so this is the most important slide of the day. It says, nerve cells that no longer fire together, no longer wire together. That's called the universal law. You don't use it, you lose it. I call this the science of changing your mind or throwing out the mental trash. Here we go. You're sitting now, and you're going to create a new future, and you start thinking, OK, I, what would it be like to be happy, or what would it be like to be healthy? And you're going to fire this new thought, so you close your eyes, you eliminate the external environment, you put your body away, and you're going to get beyond time. So here's the new thought right here. This blue neuron called, I am healthy, or I am happy. So you sit down, and you close your eyes, and you start to fire this thought. And as you fire this new thought, you are activating a new level of mind. And as you begin to fire this thought, you've got to seal the connection. But there's only one problem. You've been firing and wiring a lot of other thoughts. And as you're in the midst of creating your own joy and your own happiness or your own health, all of a sudden you hear those voices and you're like, you're not happy. You'll never change. You're a, you're a slob. You're too old. It's never going to work. That's the chatter that's been going on. And so all these other circuits have been happening behind the scenes of your awareness because they're subconscious automatic programs. And now, they, you become very conscious of them when you're in the midst of change. So while all of this chatter is going on in your head, you have this one element called your will. And your will is connected to your spirit. And if you keep firing that same thought over and over again and restraining those other thoughts, if you keep doing it over and over again by the law of repetition, sooner or later, what's going to happen? That's going to become the loudest voice in your head or the strongest signal in that neuron. The moment it becomes the strongest signal, I am healthy, becomes the loudest voice in your head. And now you're firing the circuit, and it has to be sealed. You with me? But if you're going to seal the circuit, the, the thought travels down in this direction called an action potential from this nerve to this nerve. But the glue that seals it travels in the opposite direction. So the glue has got to seal the circuit, but there's only a certain amount of glue going around. So as the, as the brain seals the circuit, it steals the glue from the neighboring circuits. And all of a sudden, there goes the thought that you're too much like your mother, or the pain's never going to go away, or this is what the doctor told you, you have to live with it the rest of your life. And now what's the only signal traveling to your body? I am healthy. How many people understand? Now, this is not some new age understanding. This is the way it is. It's called pruning in neuroscience. And if nerve cells that no longer fire together, no longer wire together, as you begin to create a new level of mind, your brain literally reorganizes itself as fast as those neurons connecting. Now think about this. 
If every place where one neuron connects with another neuron is called a memory, think about this, then as you begin to prune away those old circuits, would you agree then the memory of the old self is literally gone in the brain? You with me? Now here's the question. Where is that memory stored? In the soul as wisdom. So now it becomes like another lifetime. And now your brain and your biology is a reflection of your intention and your new state of being. How many people understand that? So then if, there are, if those neurons are pruned away, the memory of you no longer exists. And just like all those people that healed themselves and created a new life, they'll tell you, every single one of them, it was like another life. That, that person was like another person from the past. I, I'm, I'm, a, some, I'm completely someone else. And the wisdom of their experience now is stored in their soul, and now they get to create a new future because they're no longer anchoring biologically to the past. How many people understand that? So then... The question, of course, <clears throat> is can you believe in a new future that you can't see or experience with your senses yet, but you've thought about enough times in your mind that your brain has literally changed to look like the experience has already happened? Neuroplasticity says it's absolutely possible. And can you emotionally embrace a future potential before the actual experience, so much so that you convince your body emotionally that that future experience is happening to you in the present moment, so much so that you're signaling new genes and new ways so that your body physically changes to look like the experience happened? Epigenetics says it's absolutely possible. So then, if your brain and body are physically changed, to look like the experience has happened, there's evidence there to look like it's already happened by thought alone, then the experience has already happened. Would you agree? And now your brain and body have just caused you to move from living in the past to living in the future. Now you are ahead of your time. And when you successfully apply this new paradigm, when your brain and body are no longer a record of the past, now they are a map to the future. You are living by the quantum law. Thank you for tuning into this episode. If you're enjoying the content, you can access exclusive material by becoming a subscriber. Continue strengthening your mind by listening to our other episodes.